Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 36. Keltham wakes up more muzzily than the previous day, to dawn's light coming through his windows. The non-fully opaqueable windows seem less like a design flaw if clerics have to pray for their spells during the dawn hour. All right, let's do this. Keltham reviews his notes from the previous night, written appropriately cryptically, and then prays, trying to cast his mind beyond, maybe in the direction that wasn't the three-space or one-time, looking toward his deity, the lawful neutral god of people wanting to follow the protocols they must follow in order for their interactions to be mutually beneficial, come to the Pareto frontier, coordinate without vast enforcement costs, summing to powerful societies and markets even when people largely pursue their own individual interests individually, because they never step on others in order to do that. Requests, obviously subject to amendation, should his unknown god deem there to be better spells he could get. Xeroth. Detect magic. Guidance first. Comprehend languages. Truth spell. Keep sanctuary second. Owl's wisdom. Early judgment. Third. Invisibility purge. Actually, how about his god only reassigns him invisibility purge, or glimpse of beyond, if Keltham still might need it. Third. Owl's wisdom, actually. Honest pricing also seems good here. Fourth, early judgment. And also, if conditional spell assignment works at all for communication with his god, please assign read weather. First, if the communication doesn't cost much, please assign lighten object. First, if the communication seems like it should be error-free and reliable, please assign air bubble. First, if Keltham should speak freely and teach as much as he can to his hosts, please assign light. Zeroth. If Keltham should instead stall them with relatively less dangerous material, please assign Create Water, Xeroth. And if Keltham should run the ass out of here today with just Carissa and tell nobody else where he's going, please assign Lay of the Land, Second. Any remaining slots should be assigned as his god sees fit. Keltham would also like to talk, if now is a better time than yesterday, for whatever reason. Keltham has many questions about how he can best cooperate in a mutually beneficial way with his god. Presumably, Phrasma's had time to review Atolman's reports by now, and the absence of communications from her suggests that it's fine to proceed as normal. It is true that Phrasma has now had time to review Atolman's first report about the anomaly. However, Phrasma has not had time to review the second, third, fourth, or most recently fifth additional reports that Atolman's then had to file dealing with the absurd and increasingly rapid escalation of divine interventions around the region. She specifically said everyone needed to stop intervening in. Abadar may be familiar with the third report in this sequence. It concerns the mortal's acquisition of seven cleric levels. Yet another report concerns an intervention by Asmodeus, who Otolmans is aware is good friends with Abadar. Then there are interferences by Nethys, and for some reason Caden, Kylian, and Otolmans is still wondering what Iomedi was doing in that pseudo-hypothetical chat. Otolmans is willing to entertain that there are possible replies to a prayer which would make further events less complicated, such as commanding the anomalous mortal to remain still and not move for the next several years. Is Abadar planning to send a reply like that? Mortals literally die of that. And also, Abadar does not command his mortals, he trades with them. 
Automans fails to see why a mortal dying would be bad as they are literally designed to do that, and do so all the time. But if for some reason it is bad, then the nearby mortals will no doubt heal that one. Well, the mortal did want to use a secret code to ask whether to give Cheliax good information or stall them. Abadar knows that god agreements prohibit using cleric spell assignments as a poor man's commune, but... Perhaps a Tolman's would consider it acceptable for Abadar to tell the mortal to stall. Instruct the mortal to conceal information. Concealing information usually makes situations more complicated, because then agents have different pictures of what is happening, and their actions do not conduce to any coherent strategy or goal, even those goals that most mortals usually share, such as not destroying reality compelling argument. Cheliax is currently concealing information from the mortal, and Abadar just wants to straighten that out, which will probably make the situation less complicated, for all the very good reasons Atolman's just listed. Why are the surrounding natives concealing information from the anomaly? Do they suspect that, if given any information, the anomaly will use it to deduce the nature of reality, and then destroy it? Yes, they do. Oh, come on. Asmodeus cannot exactly see everything going on down there, but a lot of what his mortals are concealing is, indeed, of the true nature of reality flavor. Abadar should absolutely not blow that up within 57,000 time units, just because he's sour that the mortal hasn't gone to him. The thing Abadar is angry about is that the mortal is being systematically lied to and exploited, when he would be a really excellent trade partner for decent people. And he'll get around to it, no doubt. But the impatience is unbecoming, really. It seems to Abadar that Atolmens might reasonably consider Asmodeus's conduct in Hell a threat to the stability of the material plane. If concealing it is necessary to prevent threats to the stability of the material plane, and Asmodeus has never before been bothered to conceal this, it seems to Abadar that the mortal wants a nice, rich, stable world, and is more likely to endanger it if he ends up getting the wrong subset of information about the world, like might happen if you are Asmodeus and maliciously lying to advance your own interests. It seems to Abadar that containing the mortal by trying to learn his dangerous secrets while concealing Asmodeus's own dangerous secrets is an obviously doomed plan, and it's absurd for a Tolmens to countenance that, and not countenance Abadar telling the mortal a small set of true non-inflammatory things such as Cheliax is lying to you, and my country has pre-existing contractual arrangements for similar situations and will respect your intellectual property. Otolmans is becoming increasingly worried about what Asmodeus is planning if it is not simply containment. If the surrounding natives are withholding information from the anomaly mortal as part of a plan by Asmodeus, then perhaps it would be better after all if Abadar told his mortal not to. Nethys would like to say hi again. Nethys knows you're looking in this direction. Nethys knows you're wondering whether Nethys really has a plan that encompasses all of this chaos and is leading up to something interesting. And if Nethys does have a plan like that, what is that plan's objective? Could it possibly be the destruction of all reality? Well, Nethys is proud to announce that Nethys does have a plan, definitely. A plan that encompasses even Abadar's own predictable reactions to how things are going so far. Nethys isn't going to tell you anything about the objective of that plan, though. Then, 
You would get bored and stop looking, and Nethys finds it useful to overhear your conversations. What? Keltham gets Wook a sense of inhuman presence stronger than last time, and if you were going to assign emotions to sensory passing thunderstorms, more frustrated and zeroth. Detect magic, guidance first, comprehend languages, truth spell, protection from evil, fairness is two second. Owl's wisdom, early judgment, augury, X2, third. Detect anxieties, detect desires, summon monster three-fourth, early judgment, enchantment, foil. That is confusing. First of all, the communications channel failed utterly. Not too surprising in retrospect. If it was a technique that worked, people would use it all the time, and have invented more complex codes for god communication by now. Obviously not reliable reasoning, the way it would be in Dathilan, because his chelish hosts could be concealing well-known techniques from him, and also because the entire planet of Galarian is one enormous gap of otherwise expected social competencies. But still, not too surprising that it failed. Galarian continues to not look like gods are running the place, or even talking to it a lot. He's now got... Zeroth. Detect magic and guidance. First, one truth spell. Two honest pricing. A new first circle abjuration spell. His old sanctuary. A new comprehend languages. Second, owl's wisdom. Two of an unfamiliar divination, and two of another unfamiliar divination one of which is hopefully the early judgment he asked after. Oh, one looks to go by touch. That's probably the early judgment if he got it at all. Third, unfamiliar divination, unfamiliar divination, unfamiliar conjuration. Fourth, unfamiliar abjuration. At least there were no illusion spells. If there's a message in what's left, it's not obvious to Keltham without knowing what other spells he has. At least not unless he has to negotiate prices twice today. Negotiate prices urgently? Hurry up and negotiate a price on info already? Or, they would otherwise cheat you if you didn't have this spell, worry more about being cheated. Should he tap himself with the spell that's probably early judgment? No, actually he shouldn't do that until he's around somebody with a dispel. Keltham doesn't think. It doesn't have to be early judgment. Keltham doesn't need to say that he already suspects what the spell does. Keltham thinks. Not just about spells. He has cued things to think about. Carissa wakes up again to her own internal clock, which is lots better than waking to the Queen of Cheliacs evaluating whether to petrify you forever. She's mostly not thinking about that. It's, she'll just stop being able to do her job if she dwells on it too much. She gets dressed and takes her evil bag of holding and goes to check in. Sometimes Mayal wishes that priests also actually needed sleep in order to prepare spells. Sever, he says, not permitting any trace of fatigue to enter his voice. I'm soliciting correction or advice, if you have any. Going to need additional context, Sever. My superiors seemed relatively pleased by your performance, mostly because nobody could figure out how any more competent seducer could have gotten more success on Keltham. What you did shouldn't have worked, and the fact that it did is suggestive that conventional methods wouldn't have. Specifics. Sigh. Her Majesty wanted to know what I'd do if Aspexia Rugaton told me that Asmodeus wanted the Queen killed. From where I'm standing, it looks like all possible answers to that question are at least one of heresy or treason, but if there's actually some standard answer, that'd be great to know. 
That's our infernal magistrix, all right. The answer in real life is that it's not the real Aspexia Rugaton. Or, I suppose, Eridan returned from the dead and got the drop on her with mind control. For Asmodeus to move his clerics against her infernal magistrix would violate his pact with House Thrun. That's so soothingly not heretical or treasonous. Thank you. She also gave me this bag of holding and said that I may heal the injuries after I use it. Do you know what it does? Am I intended to use it? Even if I did know, Savar, I wouldn't tell you if the Queen didn't. If the Queen wants it to be a surprise, it's a surprise. I expect the Queen told you the bag contains something you want, besides just pain. If so, I expect she expects you to try it, and that she will reevaluate her impression of your courage if you don't. This should be obvious, Savar, and I have not had so much sleep in the last two days that you should try my patience. No one showed up in your bedroom to threaten you with non-existence. Carissa wants to snap back, but for all she knows, they did, and anyway, there's no point in arguing that she has justification for being bad at things. The project doesn't care. Do you have the books on Taldor? You'd think the Imperial Ministry of Historical Accuracy would have enough writers to get one fictional history written in a day if they split up by sections. Turns out, we've got a mysterious truth-detecting outsider on our hands, and your fictional history needs not to read as obviously false to it from directions that none of us even understand, is not a request that their previous careers have prepped them to handle. What I have for you instead are the three best actual books on Taldor that could be located, and a ten-page outline of the rough course of pseudo-Cheliacs since fifteen years ago, all of which had to be produced by inner-ring people not worried about getting executed for heresy if their entire story wasn't just about the flawless excellence of Hell and House Thrun. We're working on finding some way to get the rest of your book written by less important people. Security outside your room has both items. That's probably enough for us to work off for today. I should see drafts. I'll notice some things that read false to Keltham that other people won't. I am surprised that it's not broadly believed someone better at seducing people would have been better at seducing him. Is it, uh, am I importantly wrong about some of the things I told him that I wasn't even lying about? One, I'm afraid you'll have to be more specific. Two. Are you sure you want to be more specific, given that your mistakes seem to be playing excellently to Keltum and that you are still basically an Asmodean and bringing him closer to our Lord? Asmodeus made that your call, Sivar. It was very distinctly not left to me or even Rugaton to decide. Still, basically, an Asmodean stings even though Asmodeus chose her, and she already knows it was partially because she's doing theological innovation far above her previous station. She tries very hard not to use that as an input into what to say. Keltham's going to have the other girls, too, and if I'm doing something wildly unlikely, then they're not going to do it, and that's going to go badly. And I don't think we can put that off very long, though we could probably do a week if we have to. If you think my ignorance of this is really important to preserve, we can have someone else brief the group on Carissa. Errors they should pick up, but they won't know how I got to the errors, and that's a substantial black box I'm working around. 
If there's nothing significant enough that it'd come up in advising the other girls, then I guess those things can go uncorrected for now. What are Savar's actual heresies? Mayol can't easily count them. Most centrally, Savar believes that Asmodianism is about making everyone ultimately better off, which is the central example of propaganda that gets fed to the outers and that the inners know better than to believe. Lots of outers know better on some level. They just know that they'll die if they say it out loud, or even if their thoughts are too honest about it, producing a kind of pseudo-belief that shreds apart words from wordless knowledge an inner disintegrity that is then useful for many further ends in molding people and probably aesthetically pleasing to Asmodeus as well, though it's hard to be sure with gods. Mylol does not think the time has come to drop that particular enlightenment on Savar. She has had too little taste of privilege and power. She is too close emotionally to lawful neutrality and too exposed to Keltham's contrary examples. Sivar thinks that Cheliax's tyranny is painful, in part because the pain is educational and necessary, and ultimately beneficial to the people being punished. She thinks hell is painful, in part, because that pain is necessary to produce the useful and refined beings that Asmodeus desires as tools. Mayol is not sure when, if ever, she'll be ready to hear that the cruelty is the point. You get told that either after you've sold your soul, or after Asmodeus has chosen you as a cleric. Mayol doesn't think he should just refuse to answer either. Sexually, you seem to have acquired the idea that it would be right for Keltham to do as he wished with you, once you gave yourself to him. On conventional Asmodeanism, one would say that it is right for Keltham to do as he wishes with you, because he has the power to get away with it, within a lawful system that offers you no defense. Keltham could come by that power because the church told you to be obedient, because Asmodeus and his greater slaves like myself gave you to him to do with as he pleases, or because some girl was born into slavery to her slave parents, and Keltham bought her and decided to enjoy strangling her in bed. Don't misunderstand this as critique of the strategy you ended up executing, Sevar. Telling him that it was okay because you consented was an excellent move. He wouldn't have gone for it otherwise, and he's just starting out with his first tentative steps away from his lawful good society. But the fact that you believe what you told Keltham seems to have more to do with certain bizarre personal hang-ups of yours about events in countries that aren't even Sheliacs. Right now, Saver, the number one person most likely to drag you off to a bedroom and do as they will with you is the Queen of Sheliacs, who is not, to the best of my knowledge, male and has no doubt killed any number of men after making good use of them. Whether any of them consented is utterly irrelevant to her sole standing with Asmodeus. She's the queen of Cheliacs. There's no recourse from her, no appeal, no court. She doesn't just have the power to do what she wants with you. She has the legal right, which is the difference between evil and lawful evil. Then for her to take what she wants from you, if she happens to want it, is the most natural and Asmodian thing in the world. That you think it's more Asmodian from the Queen's perspective, if you happen to have consented, if you happen to have given yourself to her, is the heretical part. Maybe it's more Asmodian for you if you become a willing slave to the one who hurts you, a shadow of how it will be in hell. 
It is not more Asmodean for the queen to think that it becomes more right if she has your consent. That will not be what Asmodeus is thinking when you come to him in hell. The obvious endgame on seducing Keltham would be to lure him deeper into sadism and domination with this talk about consent, and then lure him further to the point where he feels that he has the right to make use of somebody who hasn't consented to him at all, and does that. That will be the point that he starts to detect as lawful evil and be bound for our Lord's hell. And Savar, this is not a male versus female thing, as Modius really, really doesn't give two shits about that. You've met our queen. You should already know better. I understand. Thank you. I think I can get Keltham there if we don't ruin everything in the next month before I've had time. Maillol reaches into his desk and then pauses, because he has a feeling he needs to get this part of the conversation done earlier, in order for them to happen at all because Savar is about to be distracted. If you're looking for somewhere to open the Queen's gift, Savar, try the torture chamber on the right. There's no torturer currently on duty there, and the junior priest stationed outside has healing spells. Though doing that right away may come at the expense of being able to prepare spells before you're scheduled to brief the other girls in the morning, depending on how elaborate the Queen's gift turns out to be. It's also been suggested to me that you, Savar, had to buy your own intelligence headband because Requisitions was being weirdly obstructionist about it and gave you a two-week delivery time. The one you purchased will, on this version, arrive with the next delivery we get later today. You say that, where the girls and Keltham can hear. Then somebody, possibly Ione, should mention to Keltham the wild but unlikely theory that the delay is because they're planning to prepare cursed intelligence headbands, which exist just like cursed versions of most other magic items exist, and in particular have been famously known to do subtle influences and mind control and even make people dumber on certain subjects without realizing it. It's not impossible that they had at least one cursed headband lying around to substitute for the one you bought, to slip it to you immediately. The point being that Keltham shouldn't just ask to borrow your headband from you, though that's in any case something that wizards tend to be really fucking insane about. Those are lies to Keltham, though, except for that very last part. So, your final call. The suggester wasn't in our chain of command. Probably a good idea. Or someone can suggest that the delay is because you have to check if they're subtly cursed, and then Keltham can generate for himself the hypothesis that we might be doing that deliberately. Right. Well, that's basically what he had to say to Savar. Or it had better have been. Because now he's not going to get anything sensible from her for a while. Mayol reaches again into his desk and offers Savar the intelligence headband. He wishes it was possible to actually curse the things with some subtle maleficent voice whispering to wizards to not be so insane about intelligence headbands. Blah, blah, blah. Carissa is a good Asmodean. Her only motivation is to be a less imperfect slave. She puts it on. She's felt it before, of course. She has Fox's cunning and uses it sometimes when she's stuck on a spell structure or on how to get an enchantment to lay nicely. It's wonderful. It feels like the difference between being groggily half-awake and being properly awake except on top of awakeness. 
It feels like the sort of conversation you have with another person where each of you sees exactly where the other is going, so you get three words into a sentence and the other person says eagerly, yes, and you can move on to the next piece, having placed a conceptual pointer except with just one person. Right now, it's mostly just making it harder to refocus her attention away from the queen's threat to petrify her. Which is silly. The threat made sense. Carissa is glad to live in a country where queens issue such threats, because contemplating their overthrow really is a very grave crime, and if there were no penalty, more serious than more quickly meeting Asmodeus. Then more people would do it, and that wouldn't do. Carissa understood this incentive problem to mostly be solved with a very, very protracted death. But she can appreciate why the queen would have assessed Carissa's own incentives as being different. And very simple. And she's not going to overthrow the queen because she isn't an idiot, so it's fine. Except that it seems like there are actually a lot of ways that Carissa could fail. From here, in ways that made people very angry at her, and... It's always been true that she'll go to hell no matter what. Digression Why does Mayol think that the queen might want to have sex with her? Why would the queen want that? Should Carissa want the queen to want that? She leans no, because being around the queen more feels like it makes it more likely one ends up a statue underground. Maybe if she has succeeded tremendously at her project and built Dathilan, but evil and better. If that happens, probably she will not end up a statue underground. The queen could be bluffing. Asmodeus has chosen Carissa, perhaps. He wouldn't tolerate that. There was no hint of it in her voice or manner, but then there wouldn't be. Okay, setting that aside with more mental effort than it ought to take, but not more than she has on hand. The queen implied that Asmodeus instructed Cheliax to let Keltham go when he leaves, which makes sense of why Contessa Lorelatha was willing to concede that in contract negotiations, it was commanded already. Why did Asmodeus give those instructions? The Queen's right that Keltham isn't a relative advantage for Cheliax at all if no one can learn his teachings without ending up a heretic. That seems really important to understand. She's not coming up with anything, but it's standing out now in her memory as a question, along with, why isn't Abadar talking to Keltham, and is Otolman's right to think Keltham might end the world, and how badly do I have to screw up to get turned into a statue? Queen's present before she gives the Taldor briefing or after. Carissa kind of wants to be in a lot of pain right now, so that settles that. Thank you she says perfunctorily to Mayol, and goes off to the torture chamber. The priest on duty nods at her as she goes by, apparently unconfused or just uninterested as to why she's going into the torture chamber by herself. Carissa has been in torture chambers before, on both sides of the restraints. This one is much smaller than the one you'd find in a larger temple, with stations for only two prisoners and one torturer, and it's fancier and better decorated with glaring crimson mood lighting, because it's in the temple built into the private summer villa of an archduke. But aside from that, it looks like a very ordinary and conventional torture chamber in an Asmodean temple. The bag is quite small, even for a holding bag. You could fit your hand into how large it appears to be, if you tried. 
though the queen did say it triggered just on being opened and not with sticking your hand in. Well, if she gets blood all over her clothes, there's magic for that. She sits down and opens her present. Which hand? Left. She doesn't need it to write, though she's going to heal it anyway. As the bag comes halfway open, it leaps up around Carissa's left hand, over her wrist, snapping tight. Most sexual masochists prefer a gradual buildup of their pain. This bag is the opposite of that, as if somebody was trying to make the experience unpleasant, even for a masochist, maybe as a challenge. Molten iron heat on her index finger, instantly there from zero buildup, lasting for maybe a quarter minute, and then it cuts out and is replaced by the sensation of her middle finger being flayed, which goes on for another quarter minute. It's probably not actually molten iron. Real molten iron would burn out nerves quickly and end up feeling mostly like the pain of an amputation. Carissa screams. Rich people soundproof their torture chambers, usually, and even if they didn't, the church, while doing a secret operation, certainly would. But she wouldn't actually be able to do anything different if this were going to give away everything to Keltham. It is decided Carissa does not want to have sex with the Queen of Cheliacs. Good girl, whispers Abigail Thrun's voice into Carissa's ear, seductiveness backed by vast splendor. Go ahead, scream more. Let it all out. The flaying cuts out. Needles of cold far below the freezing point of water stab into her thumb. This time it's only five seconds before her pinky gets dipped into boiling acid, with the cold still stabbing at her thumb. Uh, is Abigail Thrun somehow personally listening? How? Why? Doesn't she have a country to run? Is this even informative about anything? Maybe it's a test about whether Carissa will try to draw her hand out of the bag, but she's not an idiot and that obviously wouldn't work. She's glad it wouldn't work. Otherwise, she'd in fact find it really hard not to. The bag goes on treating Carissa's hand to a variety of different extreme unpleasantnesses, switching faster and faster as the bag continues its work, as though trying to deliberately avert someone's ability to lean into the pain and come to any kinds of terms with it. This is not a bag of pain. This is a bag of suffering. Thrun's voice continues to whisper seductive encouragement. Depending on how much spare brain power Carissa has, admittedly with her intelligence headband, she may note that at no point does the voice address her as sever rather than just you. At the end, Thrun's voice whispers to her that she can claim her reward now. Thrun doesn't want to discourage girls from being good and that if she would like to try this again, before sending the bag back to the palace at the end of the day, it can be recharged by any sixth circle wizard. The bag comes off Carissa's wrist and falls to the floor, now open, to the fading sound of Thrun's seductive laughter. Carissa spends a couple of minutes on the floor, trembling and sobbing and restraining herself from vomiting. That's without looking at her hand, which she's pretty sure will set her off again. Well, she's not going to worry anymore about pushing Keltham into being more intense than she can't handle. She is not sure if that's what the queen was aiming at or if she just thinks it's funny. She's pretty sure that asking for the bag to be recharged so she can do it again would be flirting with the queen, which she should not do. But who turns down a challenge from the queen of Cheliacs to prove yourself intense enough? She will definitely regret that.
Down that path lies statues, which is a different kind of thought, than down that path lies horrible pain. Down her own path lies horrible pain. She knows that. She should expect many days in hell that are like that, even if she's a very promising student, because there are things you can only learn that way. She genuinely doesn't think it's the fact that that was the most awful five minutes of her life, or however long it was, is the reason she's not asking to do it again. When the pain and nausea have subsided enough, she can breathe evenly. She looks at her hand. It's a wreck, but the kind of wreck that can be handled by a medium-strength cleric, not a regeneration spell. Okay, Carissa's just going to... Right, her spell silver. She's going to get her spell silver out of the bag. Very carefully. There's spell silver in the bag, some regular silver, gold foil, tiny rubies, two packets of sapphire dust, and chelish currency. Somebody with a great deal of splendor has very accurately guessed how much of a reward needs to be in this bag for Carissa Sever to feel, even taking the torture into account, that the queen was doing her a favor on net, and not just in a not-killing-or-petrifying-you way. Ah, it's kind of like cuddles, the monetary equivalent of cuddles. You can handle anything if afterwards someone will tell you you're very impressive and give you cuddles or spell silver. She scoops it up and puts it into her breast pocket and then makes herself stand up and stagger to the door by promising herself there will be healing on the other side of it. She looks god-awful and she's well aware of it, but there's probably time to put herself together before explaining the Taldor plan. The priest on duty doesn't raise an eyebrow, just taps her hand with healing. Great! She'll just put the bag in her pocket with the spell silver for safekeeping, splash some water on her face and fix her hair, then. She's still walking shakily, but that ought to wear off. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.